Yahweh, we just thank you for who you are. Always we thank you for who you are, that you are a God unlike any other God. We thank you that you're sovereign above all things. We thank you that you're unconditionally loving above all things. We thank you for all the many ways that you take care of us, the, the ways that we, you take care of us and we don't even know it. And we just pray that you just continue to guide us, continue to enter our lives, continue to speak to us on a daily basis, as we know you will because you promised it. But I just pray that we would be aware of it. I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the amazingness of it all, the, the truths that are in it. I pray that your Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that brought this word into our existence, will be the same Holy Spirit that communicates it, interprets it, and applies it to our lives tonight. Um, once again, I pray for clarity of thoughts. I pray that you would remove all distractions. I pray that we'd be able to know and understand your word. And then I pray that that word would be able to speak into all the distractions that we normally deal with in our day. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in Roman numeral number three. The superiority of Jesus as high priest. We have dealt with Jesus' superiority to the prophets and the angels and to Moses. And now we dive into the superiority of Jesus as a high priest. This is the key because where the law was mediated through angels and then it was mediated from angels to Moses, the people who were responsible for maintaining the law and for dealing with the violations of the law were the priests. And so... Even though Moses is probably one of the most significant, most important figures in all of Jewish history, the priests were probably the most significant in the sense of everybody actually experiencing and living with priests throughout their entire life. Though Moses was a huge spiritual giant and founding father, so to speak, only one generation knew Moses. Where the, the priests were the ones that every generation interacted with. Every generation went through the priests in order to get God. So they were the most visible, most practical, most continuous present, all presence all throughout Israel's history. And so they were responsible for bringing God to the people through teaching, through an understanding of God. They're responsible for then bringing the, the repentance and the sacrifices of the people to God in order to atone for the sins. And then they were also responsible for bringing then the presence of God into the presence of Israel now that the sins have been atoned for. And so God held them up to an incredibly high standard of righteousness and morality. Because if you're responsible for atoning the sins of immorality, you're held to a much higher standard. The other thing that's very important to understand is that only those who come from Levite or Levi were able to be priests. Jacob had 12 sons. And it's a little bit more complicated than that, but we'll just leave it at that for now. But he had 12 sons, and technically his 12 sons and his two grandsons became the 12 tribes of Israel, but that's another unpacking. And so one of these tribes was Levi, and Levi got chosen for the priesthood. Now, originally, God's intention was that all of Israel be priests. 
When you go back to Exodus chapter 6, God says, I will make you a special possession, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. That was his desire. So he invited all of Israel up under the mountain. We talked about this last week. And Israel responded and said, no, this God's too scary. We don't want to get too close to him. He'll kill us. And so they lost the intimate right. They, the mountain was the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was where God dwelt. And that's where the people... God came down to the tabernacle, which was a tent with a courtyard around it. And God dwelled in it through the pillar of fire. And that is where God encountered humanity in space, time, and matter. He's outside of creation. So that was a very specific space that God would dwell in, very much more physically matter present than anywhere else in the world. And a very specific time is when they would go into the tabernacle, the high priest once a year, and the Holy of Holies, the priest daily, and the nation of Israel on Sabbaths, the Saturday. So that was a place where they could meet God more intimately in space, time, and matter. So the mountain, Mount Sinai, becomes the first presence of that. And God's going to later reduplicate that through the tent. And so the priests are allowed into the tabernacle. And if the mountain is serving as a tabernacle, the presence of God at that moment, then God is literally inviting the entire nation into the tabernacle. The entire nation backs out out of fear. And so that's what begins to dump the law on them. Then later they worship the golden calf. And when they worship the golden calf, God basically says, you've lost the right to be priest. But there was one tribe who did not worship the golden calf, and there was one tribe that stood next to Moses and said, we will help punish those who worship the golden calf and refuse to repent. And that was Levi. And so Levi maintained their right to be priests because they stood next to God during the golden calf incident where all the other 12 tribes lost the right to be priests. So only Levi were about allowed to be priests. And they were incredibly significant, incredibly important. So that's what we're going to be dealing with today. Now, does that make sense? So we're going to the priesthood now because here's the problem. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. And the law forbid a Judaite to be priests. So this section is going to deal with why is it that Jesus has the right to be priests, and therefore, and how can you be superior to the priesthood if you're not even legally allowed to be priests? So that's what it's mostly going to deal with. But before that, he's going to kind of give you this little application of priesthood. And then he's going to stop and say, but wait a minute. Some of you are incredibly immature. And he's going to unpack another warning passage. And probably one of the most controversial passages in the entire Bible. And then he's going to dive back into the priesthood in chapter 7. So that's what we're going to do. Priesthood in 4, a little warning passage in 5 and 6, and then back into the priesthood in 7. So chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us confidently approach the throne of the grace to receive mercy and find grace whenever we need help. 
So chapter 14, chapter 4, verse 14 starts with therefore. Hope you're starting to get used to these. Okay? And the ver- therefore always points you back to the previous things. So, because we don't have enough time to unpack this whole book in one night, you have to remember everything we've been talking about. So therefore, in light of all this amazing stuff, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Now, in this section, Jesus is going to be called a faithful and merciful high priest. This is significant because nowhere ever in the Bible is anybody ever called merciful and faithful except for God. The priests are never called faithful and the priests are never called merciful. Not that they weren't, but that those terms were specifically and intentionally used of them in God's word. The only time you ever see those words is used of God. So once again, not only is he emphasizing the humanity of Christ by calling him high priest, but once again, he keeps making these little connections back to his godhood. This is why it is so ignorant for people to say that Jesus never ever connected to godhood in the Bible. Because once you begin to understand how God is described in, that Jesus, in those descriptions that are only used of God, and then they start being used of Jesus, that clearly reveals Jesus God, at least through the biblical understanding of things. Now we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Most translations say heavens, um, but that's not a good translation. The word orionos here in the Greek is sky or heavens it can mean either way and the in the when the word is in its plural form it always refers to the sky when the word is in its singular form it always refers to the heaven where god dwells and you can see this if you especially if you, if you have an ESV translation the same rule applies to shamayim the hebrew word for sky and heaven. And when you go back to Genesis and it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, plural. Heavens, if you later go on, it says, Then God put an expanse between the waters above and the waters below, and he called the expanse above heavens, sky. And then it says, And then all and God named God put all the birds of the air in the heavens. And so it lets you know that's not the way we speak today, that's a little bit more of an old school English. But it lets you know that whenever you see heavens, or these Hebrew and Greek words, plural, it's always referring to sky. When it's singular, it's heaven. And it's important because if Jesus passed through heaven, then where is he now? (laughs) Like he's on the other side of heaven. Is he just in this void? So the reality is, is he passed through the sky. This is very important because later as we get into Hebrews and other places in the Bible, the sky is going to be set up like a veil. And so when you walked into the tabernacle, you walked through the courtyard, the courtyard fence, and you're this big opening, there was the altar of sacrifice and then the wash basin. And then you walked into the holy place, which was a rectangular room. And then you walked into the holy of holies, which was a cube. And so there's one tent divided in two sections, rectangular, and in the back of cube. And so when you walked into the, the holy place, before you get from the holy place to the holy of holies, the cube, the place that the Ark of the Covenant was, the place that the pillar of fire was, the place that only the high priest could go into one time a year, there was a veil there. And I think we're familiar with that because when Christ died on the cross, the veil was ripped 
from the sky down, meaning that our access to God is now available. So what's interesting is that the holy place represents earth and the holy of holies represents heaven and the veil, which is like the sky, becomes a barrier between the two. And even the ancient world, they, they knew the sky was something different than the atmosphere we're in now and the whatever's above the sky because they did not know about outer space, but they did believe that the gods built their palace on top of the circumference of the earth. That's very clear in Isaiah. And so the idea is they saw this tabernacle as a microcosm of the macrocosm universe. And that the only way you can get through the sky is if angels took you, visions, if you were sinless, which all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, or through the blood of Christ, but they didn't know about that yet. So the reality is, God is now saying that our Christ is the one who passes from the holy place through the sky, which is the veil, and into heaven. And of course, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1-4 through 4, says he sits in the right hand of God as well. And so that's the imagery here, that we do not have a high priest that passes through a curtain into a cube one time a year. We have a great high priest that passed through the sky into the heaven of God because he's the builder over all things. Now, why is this significant? Because remember, he is the Son of God who is transcendent above all things, separate from all things. Yet he becomes a human and stands in our midst and is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Now that brother that we have, who is willing, he loves us so much that he was willing to die for us, goes back into heaven. And now it's so significant because that's going to give us access. So the kind of imagery is like, the only reason you get to hang out with the really cool kids is because your older brother's hanging out with them and your older brother really likes you and the older brother's good with all the cool kids that are older than you and then he invites you along and you think that's the most awesome thing that you're hanging out with the big kids because you're with your little brother. And that's the image that's being, or your big brother, that's the image that's being painted here. Is that our older brother who stands in the midst of us and not, not, ashamed, to call, not ashamed of us, therefore he invites us, gives us access and to the Holy of Holies, the real one. Because he came down, became us, blazed the trail, and goes up again, and takes us with us. So, Jesus, for, so the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. This is something we can hold on to. Once again, if he was king, only we would fear him. But because he's king and high priest, we have this. For this reason, verse 15, we do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Now, it says that he's been tempted in every way that we have. And I remember being growing up and sitting in like the youth groups and the pastor coming in and, and they basically would say, like, Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted in every single way that you've been tempted. And God cursed me with an analytical mind. Um, and I started thinking through all these things that Jesus was not tempted in. He was not tempted to have abortion. He was not tempted for with lesbianism. He was not tempted, tempted to be so old and so suffering that he wanted to euthanize himself. And I started thinking all these things and then lost respect for the comment. Um, but I knew that doesn't mean that this was wrong. I just didn't know what it meant. 
So then I learned learn in the Greek, that's not what mean, it means. It's not that Jesus has been tempted in every way that we have. The Greek more specifically says that Christ has been tempted along all points of the scale. Now what that means is, is if you put weights on your bar for bench pressing, that's one point of the scale. You put more weights on, you're moving up the scale. You put more weights on, you're moving up the scale. So it's less to do with the types of temptations and more with the weight and the pressure and the intensity of temptation. Remember God says that He will never give us more than what we can handle? So the reality is, we're all bench pressing and temptation like 10 pounds. Because that's all we can handle. Some of us have been walking the faith longer. Maybe we can do 20 or 30. Maybe there's certain areas of your life that you can do 10 and you're good, but 20 is going to kill you and God stops it. But there's other areas in your life where one will kill you. I mean, we all have different degrees of what we can handle and different things in our life. But there's no way we can hit the max weight that the world would have to offer us in this temptation. And so this is the deal. Christ handled it all. When God makes it very clear in the book of Job that he's put Satan on a leash, and when God says to Job, or to Satan, that you, can't, you can do this and this and this, but you can't do that, when God makes it very clear that he won't give us more than what we can handle, then we can only, we're only being faced with so much. But with Jesus, he felt the full force of Satan, more specifically and graphically in the wilderness when he was tempted, but then and on too, because it says now the devil left for a more opportune time. He was coming back. And what's interesting is he gets three major temptations on the cross too. Well, if you're the son of God, then prove it. Come off the cross. So in the beginning of his ministry, it's Satan one-on-one. At the end of his ministry, it's through the world. And then it's everything in between those two things. But basically what it is, is the idea is that God lets Satan off the leash and says, sick him. And it's not because he's trying to destroy Jesus, but because he's trying to show that Christ has been tempted along all points against scale and yet without sin. That he is one who can handle all the sins of the world because he's one who cannot break. Okay, so it was not an anti-Jesus sending Satan against him. It was a, I want to show you what kind of a son that I've sent to you. And this is why it makes it very clear that it wasn't like Jesus was out in the wilderness and like, oh my gosh, they're saying he was caught off guard. It says the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Because the question that Satan's asking is not if you are the Son of Man. That's a bad translation. The translation should be, since you are the Son of Man, prove it. Show us what kind of Son of Man you are. Because the Son of God, Adam, failed. The new Son of God, Israel, failed. Are you going to fail like all the others? And so when Jesus comes out of the wilderness, He shows Himself to be a Son of God, unlike any of those who have come before Him. And that's why we should pay attention to Him through the rest of the Gospels. And so this is the point. If you're bench pressing or you're doing any kind of weightlifting, the longer you lift those weights, the heavier and heavier they get. Okay, you can only do so many reps before you break. The more weight your spotter puts on you, the harder and harder it gets. And then you can only do so much before you break. And so that's the point, 
if Jesus has no breaking point, then he keeps pushing and lifting, and the world keeps putting more weight and more pressure on him, and it gets heavier and more intense, and yet he keeps pushing up. You and I, we put it down because we can't handle anymore. We say no to the spotter because we can't handle anymore. But can you imagine the pain and the intensity you would be in if no one ever took the bar out of your hands? It's also like cross-country. Now, I've never done it personally through experience because I always see the look on their face as they're crossing the finish line, and I say, why? Uh, my roommate always tried to get me during cross-country, but every time I went to watch them run, I said, your face at the end of the race is the worst evangelism I've ever seen. Okay? Uh, there's no way I'm doing that. He's like, but there's nothing like beating your personal best. I don't care. Okay? Um, now... That's my personal preference to you, the more power to you. But I have run. I've done a lot of other things. And so here's the reality. If you run and you do that thing, when you run, it gets with every mile, with every yard for some of us, it gets harder and harder and harder. And eventually you keep running and you meet this point where your body is saying, give up, but the mind is saying, no, but I can't. I have to finish. And it becomes mind over matter. And the question is, will the mind break? Because the body's already beginning to break. Right? And so you're running and you're running and you're running and things begin to hurt, things begin to ache. You're looking at the grass and you're like, oh, that would look so nice to just lie down there. Okay? And eventually you run and run and run and your veins begin to feel like you're pumping battery acid and then you feel like you have to run some more. And it's all because you want to cross that finish line. And the question is, will the wall break you or will you break through the wall? But with every mile or kilometer, it becomes harder and harder and harder. And the mental battle becomes more and more and more intense. And that is temptation. And I don't care who you are, and I don't care what you're being faced with. If you're being tempted to lie, to cheat, to smoke, sexual immorality drinking, whatever it is, that intensity doesn't change. When you're in the moment of I want to, but I don't want to, it, has, it matters not what you're being tempted with. If you're being tempted with watching the wrong things on television or saying the wrong things to your friend or being involved in gossip, that I want to, but I don't want to, resisting and struggle is, feels exactly the same no matter what you're being tempted with. And it doesn't matter whether it's 100 pounds of metal or it's 100 pounds of wood. It's going to feel exactly the same when you're bench pressing it. And so that's the reality here. Because Jesus didn't have to be tempted in every way that we are. He just had to be tempted. Because the real temptation is not what you're facing. The real temptation is that there's a part of you in your flesh that wants to and there's a part of you in your spirit that doesn't want to. And it doesn't matter what you face. Granted, some things are harder for us to resist than other things, but the resistance feels exactly the same no matter what you're facing. And where you usually, one or two things happen, you press on and you resist, and God says, okay, well done, good and faithful servant. If you're given any more time or any more pressure, you will break. But I've seen that you've proven yourself, and he backs it off. Or you break and you say yes to make the pain go away. 
And the minute you fall down the grass and take a nap, the minute the spotter takes the weight off of you, the minute you resist, you give in to the temptation, things feel a lot better. Now granted, the consequences of your sin later really hurt. But in the moment, it feels good. Because if it didn't, you would never have been tempted with it. It at least feels good for a moment, or you would have never been attracted to it. Nobody's attracted to get hit in the head with a hammer. Okay, You're attracted because there's something pleasurable about it. And so it's that intensity. So the reality is, there was a part of Jesus who wanted to give in. If he didn't, that's not real temptation. Okay, For me, alcohol has never been a problem for me. I've got my temptations. But you can put all the alcohol in front of me and all the bachelor parties and all that kind of stuff, and I will not be tempted. Now, I'm not going to say that's true for my entire life. I don't know. That's too arrogant. But I've never really faced a struggle there. Therefore, that's not real temptation. And so the reality in the Garden of Eden, we're told that Christ said, I do not want to go to the cross. Please take this cup from me. That means he was tempted to not die for our sins. But because he couldn't break, because he's God, he pressed on on through perseverance. And that's the reality. The pressure become greater and greater and greater and greater. And where we would all bail out, that weight just gets more intense. It gets harder. The desire to give in becomes greater and greater and greater and greater. And the attraction becomes greater and greater and greater. And Christ never gave in. So here's the question. Is your superiority seen in the fact that you're tempted and give in? You're tempted and give in? Tempted and give in? Tempted, resist, give in? Tempted, resist, God takes it away? Or is your superiority shown that you're tempted and you don't give in, but it's still there? You don't give in and it's still there. And you don't give in and it's still there. And you don't give in and it's still there. And it never, ever goes away. I think we would all agree that the ones who run the longest in cross country show greater superiority than the ones that only did a 5K. It's not that you're able to do... Nobody gets trophies for doing thousands of 5Ks. People get trophies for doing 20, 30, 40, 55 Ks. And so that's where the trophies are, is how long you can run the race, how long you're able to endure, how long you're able to go without giving in, and that's what Christ did. Therefore, he did not break, though, yet without sin. So here's the reality. What does this have to do with us? When you're in that moment that you really want to give in, you really want to dive back into what you is your struggle in your life, and you're resisting, but it's hurting. People are making fun of you. You're losing face. Your, your flesh is breaking down. The temptation is not going away. You're alone in your house. You know that you're going to win acceptance points by getting into the gossip or whatever. Christ says, I know exactly what it's like to be there. I know exactly what it feels like to want to do it but not give in. I know exactly how you feel. And you can boldly and confidently come to me. When Adam and Eve sinned, they ran away and hid. When Cain sinned, he never went to God. God pursued him. Over and over again in the Bible, people run away from God when they sin. 
And God is saying the last thing you want to do when you sin, the last thing you want to do when you feel tempted is not feel this shame, not feel like you're not worthy, not feel like you have to crawl to God on broken glass, whipping yourself, saying, I'm not worthy, I did it again. But you can boldly and confidently go to the throne of God because Christ knows exactly what it's like to be human and be tempted. And you're not going to face the judgment and the wrath of God. You're going to face the sympathy and the compassion and the mercy of of your high priest who knows exactly what it's like to be there. Yet he was without sin, which means not only does he know what you're going through, not only does he know what it's like, but he's able to give you the exact same endurance, perseverance, and victory that he had. Because if we really truly surrender to him, then it's not us running the race, it's not us bench pressing, it's him taking over. And we can be without sin. Now, I'm not saying that we can get to the point in our life on earth that we can live a perfect sinless life. But I am saying eventually in heaven we will. And in heaven we will perfectly surrender and give it over all the time. Because we will never have a sin nature anymore that keeps taking it back. And so the reality is you have two things in your great high priest. You can literally walk up. Remember Daniel? where the Son of Man walked up to the throne of God boldly and confidently without the angels, and he stuck his hand out, and God gave him all power, all sovereignty, and all authority, all glory on earth, because Christ was tempted in all ways without sin. Now, this chapter is telling you this. You can boldly and confidently go up to that same throne of God before Yahweh, And you can walk up to the throne of God and you can put your hand out and you can receive all mercy, all compassion, all sympathy and the ability to endure the temptation because we have a compassionate and faithful high priest who is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Now how do you apply that? When you sin, when you're being tempted, do you recoil in shame? And begin to walk away from God? Or do you know that God is the exact place that you should be going to? Too often we begin to feel the shame. We feel like, oh my gosh, I'm being struggling with this again. I'm being tempted with this again. I can't believe I've been a Christian for 30-something years and I'm still dealing with this. And we feel this overwhelming amount of shame. That then what we do is we begin to try to resist our own or we don't feel worthy. And we don't really go to the Word of God like we're supposed to. We don't feel like we can go to God because we think like He's going to just be totally ticked and ashamed and angry at us in that moment. And Hebrews is telling you that's exactly where you can go. That's exactly where you should go. And it doesn't matter what horrible, how bad you think your sin is. And you really want to go to Him. Because He already knows it all. And he knows exactly what it's like to be that. Because he's not even condemn you for temp- being tempted because he knows exactly what it's like to be tempted. And that's the reality. And then it will be like the footprints in the sand because when we really truly cling to him and give it over to him, then he is what allows us to persevere. Because here's the thing, we've been talking about true Christians persevere, but the truth is true Christians surrender to the Holy Spirit who gives us the ability to persevere. And that's the question. We cannot view God as so lovey-dovey that He's always our friend and never our God that we bow down to and say, 
hallowed be thy name. But we also can't go to the other extreme where we constantly live under the king and the judge of who God is, that we never have any kind of intimate father, son, father, daughter relationship with him where we feel like we can just go up to him and run into his arms and talk to him about anything, no matter what crap is going on in our life. And that's why he's our king and priest. Because we bow down to him and we revere him knowing we are not worthy, but we stand up and boldly and confidently go into the throne of God because we know that Christ has given us access, not our worth has given us access. Does that make sense? And so he was tempted to a far greater intensity than what we could ever imagine, yet he resisted. So next time you're running, next time you're lifting, next time you're exercising, Think about that. As it becomes more intense, next time you're struggling with what to do with this person that's in your life, notice that Christ has gone way beyond anything that you ever have. And He has not broken. Yet without sin. Therefore, verse 16, let us confidently approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace whenever we need the help. Now, if you need to put that little paragraph on your mirror or something like that, because the only way to transform the way that you think about God is to constantly be in the Word of God. And so the key is memory verses are great, but if you don't understand what the memory verse is saying, then you just memorize a bunch of words. It's like my girls. They've memorized Frozen songs, but they don't really know what half the words mean. Okay? So we need to understand it, but now you understand it, then get this thing in your heart because this is what gives us access to God. This is our compassionate, merciful high priest. Now, you need to realize this is significant because only one guy was allowed in the the tabernacle, a tent with dirt on the floor with a gold box. Only one guy was allowed in that tabernacle for a few minutes, one time a year, and he had to come in with an animal sacrifice. And yet now today, God is saying that you can boldly and confidently go into the throne of God as many times as you want, whenever you want, without any kind of ritual, without any kind of works, merely because your hope is found in the object of Jesus Christ. That's incredible. You don't have to buy tickets. You don't have to have statuses. You don't have to have rituals. You don't have to works. You don't have to wait for a certain holiday of the year. You can go in, and the minute you're walking out and you're feeling temptation again, you can turn around and go right back. Okay? It's like when you go up to people and you're like, I'm so sorry, but I have another question. There's none of that with God. You can go in as many times as you want with whatever you have, as dirty and nasty as you are, and God will never condemn you. Never roll his eyes. Because he now knows through Christ what it's like to be there. And he has sympathy and compassion. That's significant. There's no one in your life that you could do that with. Even your closest friends, even your spouses get annoyed after a while. (laughs) And yet Christ will not. Any questions?